Just after four o'clock, you're on In Your Face on 3CR with James. Huge thanks to Matt for burning vinyl and Joe Malignaggi. Welcome back, Joe, from Europe. Uh, a great music matters. 
I'm here till five o'clock on In Your Face. I have three fabulous guests. 4.20, I'll be talking to Maria Pelotta-Chiaroli. She is a bit of a gender diversity guru, and uh, her new book that she's the chief editor of is out. It's called Living and Loving in Diversity, and it features 60 uh, multicultural people from the queer community talking about their experiences. And at 4.35, I'll be talking to Joel Murray from Positive Life New South Wales. He's been at the Ash conference, uh, the big uh, HIV, viral, hepatitis and sexual health conference in Sydney and he'll be chatting to us at 4.35 about news from the conference, especially from a people living with HIV perspective. But in the studio I am joined by Patrick Grieber. Patrick is a former Mr Australasian Bear. He's from Austria. He lives here in Melbourne with his partner. Recently he applied for permanent residency here in Australia and the Department of Immigration has rejected his application. Patrick, you must be pretty devastated. First of all, welcome back to 3CR. Good day. Hi. Uh, You must have been devastated when you got the news. Yes, very. You know, you have to understand one thing. Uh, I love Australia since I was a little child. Skippy bush kangaroo, that was the influence. But I was devastated because I'm so devoted to the country and to their people that I was heartbroken, actually. Yes. So what reason did Australia's Department of Immigration give you? Well, for in my case, I'm a skilled pastry chef and chef, and I could apply for four five seven visa because my my skills. And I got a four five seven visa, and to get a permanent residency, I needed a nomination for my work. So my work is a social society club, the Austrian club, who is here for the Austrian community here in Australia, and we are seventy five years old. And because the immigration department treated our club as a business they said oh well you had relationships in the application for the the funds where we had to pay to the um how should i say to training and the demand was nine thousand dollars and we did have the nine thousand dollars in training but there were two people who were related with each other and then the department of immigration said oh we can't accept that because why not because uh, a business is not allowed apparently to have uh, relatives together because of corruption I think. But it the, doesn't sound right, does it? it? Does I mean, not. I mean, it sounds like you're the victim of a, a technicality, some it red is. tape. It is because I do have to say, I'm very well integrated in the society in Australia, and I I do believe, you know, alone with my skills and everything, why I do I need a nomination, you know, mm. a sponsor. So tell us about those community connections. You're very active in the bear community. Exactly. Uh, you're a member of Vic Bears. Exactly. Uh, you won the Mr. Australasian Bear pageant a couple yes. of years ago. So you're connected to the bear community all around the country and in New Zealand as well. You've got pretty strong community ties. That's true. Well, yeah, I'm a very proud Vic Bear members for the Victoria State, but I'm also a member now in Queensland and uh, New South Wales, all the bear members, uh, bear clubs, because I do think, you know, we have to support each other. And I just want to be a part of this club, Vic Bears, because it's a lot about mental health as well and body issues and images that we make people aware, you know, you're perfect the way you are. So tell us about the bear community. What kind of encapsulates the spirit, the essence of the bear community? I I always have to laugh because the first the first impression for me the bear community was a club to be feel to go into where you feel well to be chunky and hairy, and hairy. And not have to worry <laughs> yes but 
I mean, it was always the history back in the 70s when everything started in the bear community was more people who was isolated from the skinnier guys who was the, you know, the perfect gay guy. And they just made their own group. And also the drag queens helped a lot to build their bear communities. And nowadays it changed a lot because it's not anymore about you have to be a specific body type. This time, I think the bear community shows you if you want support if you want friends if you want to have a social community group then go to the bears because to be honest everyone is welcomed it doesn't matter how you look who you are if you're female or non-gender everyone is welcomed it's a place where you should feel well and you should feel integrated and accepted so is the bear community going to be campaigning on your behalf and lobbying the immigration department are they going to be pressurizing uh david coleman the new immigration minister well, I got a lot of support from them. I got 270 private messages yep. from members. You need a petition, man. Yeah, exactly. I should. But I already reapplied. The only issue for my permanent residency again. So I can reapply. And I did. The only issue I have now is the law changed again. The reason why we failed last year is not anymore necessary. But apparently the English tests are... Um, expiring after three years and my English test I took is now expired and I had to take a new one which I reached not anymore the scores like I did four years ago. Okay, well, you, you sound pretty good. Yeah. Um, so, look, there's been a few whispers in the community that, oh, look, you know how people love to talk conspiracies. Oh, yeah. the reason why they knocked it back was because he won the Mr. Australasian Bear Contest and, um, you know, somehow the benefits of that award, I think a trip to Amsterdam or something might have breached immigration's requirements. Is that true or is that just people talking? I'm not sure, but... I had yesterday. But immigration didn't say it was because of the contest. No, not at all. I mean, they have to. They have to be strictly on facts as well. But sometimes I just think they're. It's just like in every business. Sometimes you get lost in translation, uh, translation or in communication. And you know, also those people who work in the immigration department are just normal people who are employed and look at things and. The laws change and they make mistakes and they didn't make a mistake in my view. And they sometimes, you know, interpret things very literally and think, oh, well, if that's exactly remotely, you know, in conflict yeah. with the guideline, then we won't give the person the benefit yeah. of the doubt. So it says something as well about the attitude yeah. of Australia's immigration department. It's a very hard line, isn't it? It is. And, I, you know, I always say, you know, the government and also the immigration department should not forget one thing. Australian... Australia was the country of opportunities. And, and an immigrant country. It is. Apart from, Everyone. of course, the traditional owners. We are all, yeah, we are all having ancestors from overseas. The only right and lawful uh, landowners are, is the Aboriginal community. So tell us about your life here in Australia. I know you've got a partner here. It must be impacting terribly on him. Well, he's devastated as well. I mean, it, it makes our relationship on a proof you know it makes it strong as well because we go through a lot it is i'm always grumpy and sometimes i can't sleep because it just takes on my nerves and he of course is a big foundation in my life right now and he puts a lot of energy from himself into my problems to help me out and make me happy and look that everything is fine so have you thought about getting married to kind of find a way of of, of being able to stay in the country because i imagine then the yeah. criteria would be different that's true. I mean, well, no, actually, it's not. It's not? 
Um, I mean, I would be maybe safe with my application for, you know, marriage equality and everything. But, but even if you got married, potentially they could say, yeah, oh, well, you have to go back to Austria and live for six months or and something. What I, no, actually not, because we live in Australia, which has another visa, which I found out yesterday, the fiancé visa, which you can actually immigrate your fiancé from overseas if you say, would you like to marry me, that they can come nine months actually to Australia till you get married. However... I found out that if you have open relationship or polyamorous relationship, that you actually don't get a visa because it's That's not outrageous. Accepted. It is. It's discrimination in my. I eyes. mean, how can they make a decision about the bona fides of consensual adult yeah. relationships? I mean, I mean polygamy or is is irrelevant yeah. really if you've got a commitment to the person. Exactly. I do think you know laws are here to protect people, but I also think laws should not be be between love. You know what I mean? So. You know, it sounds like the Department of Immigration and these guidelines means that they get very personal. They look at not just your relationship and if you've got one, but also the dynamics and how you live it. Yeah. I do think, you know, a few months ago, someone asked me what we have our community, the LGBTIQ plus community have now to fight for. We have our rights for, you know, marriage equality and everything. And I disagreed. I think we still have a, a long journey to go and fight for and i think we should really you know support each other and see that we actually really go and have a hundred percent of benefits and rights equal it's interesting isn't it because it sounds like the department of immigration has a very kind of you know traditional sense of, of relationships and what's valid and even though you know we've got marriage equality and you know the lgbtiq community is you know questioning and challenging yeah. the notion of family and relationships and yeah. all of that it seems like the government's playing catch up and and is stuck somewhere in the 20th century exactly and and it's sad and the worst part is it's not just australia it's all over the world also in austria so really, you're the benefit. You're 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 the victim, if you like, of of you know homophobia and a hetero kind of you know centrist view of the world that the Department of yeah. Immigration has. And of course, if you look at the former minister Peter Dutton, yeah. it's not surprising that that view you know is pervasive. I know we've got a new immigration yeah. minister, but you know he's only just got on the board. And let's exactly. face it, yeah. he's from the Liberal Party, and look how conservative they are. Yeah, and the funny part is the last section of the application. Uh, for permanent residency is uh, you should read the book of Australia about the constitution. And what I remember in the constitution is very clear. You should respect and treat everyone equal. And, you know, doesn't matter who she or he is or they are. So I think they really have to yeah, educate themselves a little bit into the community as well. Because after all, you know, our community was for a hundred and thousand years around. Absolutely. Well, it sounds like you've got a new application in the system. When are you going to hear about that? Uh, It could take up to six months. You need a change.org petition or something to kind of back you up and give you that prominence. I did already contacted a lot of people, and I have to say I was very surprised, and I have to say a big thank you to our mayor in Collingwood, you know, the city of Yarra, because... um, They've been backing you. I actually sent him a message yesterday. Who's the mayor? Um, Daniel Nugent. Yep. Yeah. And the mayor's responded? He's responded today in the morning, even if it's a public holiday. So I really have to say I have a lot of respect for him. And just keep building yeah. that support. Patrick Grieber, sorry about your news. Keep us in the loop. Keep I us will. updated. And thank you so much for joining us on thank 3CR you for today. Me. Quarter past four, you are on In Your Face on 3CR. And here's Dardo.
Dido there, here with me. It's 20 after 41, in your face on 3CR with James. Well, Living and Loving in Diversity is a new book that's out. It's a queer, multicultural anthology sharing over 60 stories with a multicultural perspective from queer people uh, in the Australian LGBTIQ community. On the line, I have its chief editor, which is Maria Pelotta Chiarelli. Maria, welcome to 3CR. I know you're in Perth at the Ally Conference at the moment. Busy, busy. I know, I know, I know. It's wonderful. It's been two great weeks of um, LGBTIQ conferences and allies. So thank you, James. To what extent did the idea for the book Living and Loving in Diversity come from the need to express a diversity of LGBTIQ views uh, as a result of the pressure the community was under during the prolonged marriage debate? Yeah, well, look, this book has been a long time in the making. We had to get funding. It was started by Alina Muhammad Ali and Ann Harris, then Tony Romanelli, Tony Mordini got the grants for us. And then finally, with the Victorian Multicultural Commission, yay, and the Office of Multicultural Affairs and Social Cohesion, we got the money. And then suddenly, we found ourselves with Trump, and we found ourselves with the marriage equality stuff, and suddenly we thought it's got to come together. And it became very important when also the multicultural communities were being blamed for um, not voting yes. And we thought, hang on, there's a whole lot of stories we need to tell here. And people like Paul Capsis and amazing writers like Christos Jokas and emerging writers and activists, we all came together and thought we've got to address this stuff. So there's over 60 contributions. Um, I've got a tough question for you. Personally, Maria, what did you find the most moving story? Was there one that brought you to tears, for example? Oh, um, quite a few, actually. Um, Stories around um, uh, children, uh, LGBTIQ children from diverse cultural and faith backgrounds who were abused or um, did not find that their family was home and then as they grow up and they go out into the um, predominantly white middle-class gay and LGBTIQ communities, they find that's not home either because there's racism or Islamophobia or there's, um, you know, ways of being or you're not looking right, you don't have the right clothes. So those stories were extremely difficult. Um, I know Buddhi's story, Buddhi Sadato, who's our Vice President of AGMC, talked about feeling ugly and, um, you know, made to feel ugly on the, um, you know, dating sites and, you know, no fats, no femmes, no Asians. Um, Some really incredible stories. People like Tony Ayres, who's a great filmmaker, and, you know, people like Paul Capsis talking about what they had been through as children. Franco Di Chiera talking about what it was like being a friend of, you know, Tim Conagrave and John Kaleo going through the holding the man times and everything. Everything was moving, James. <laughs> so was there a theme of racism that kept popping up in people's stories? Yes, very much so. And there's an amazing, very sexy poem, very erotic poem by Adam Ridwan. And um, he talked, his poem is called What's Your Flavour? where um, the racism is seen through exoticization. Oh, look, you know, you'd be my boyfriend for the, for the weekend because I want to have a taste of this or a feeling of, you know, this Muslim or that Indian or, but, you know, um, but you're not the person that I want to have a relationship with or you're not the person that uh, I can take home to my nice white, you know, gay, white pair, straight parent. So racism was, um, was a very strong issue. But what was really important is the way that people addressed racism, how you found home, how you found community. There were some very, very funny stories as well, but um, some really tough ones. Also, the racism coming from, from schools. You know, you go to, and here we go, Safe Schools Coalition. It's a really important time to push for these issues. A lot of children from diverse cultural backgrounds um, finding the mixture of racism, homophobia, bi, trans, intersex 
intersexism really a problem in primary schools right in through high schools and unis. For those people who are opposed to safe schools, um, what would you say to them as a consequence of, of, of reading your book? I know you'd say read the book, but what, <laughs> what do you think are some of the powerful messages that, yeah, that well, can be know, used to validate yeah. safe schools? Yeah, sorry, James, I interrupted you. I would actually go, look, don't even read the book. Go through the photos because one of the things we did and we acknowledged that it wouldn't have been possible for a lot of trans and gender diverse or non-binary people, we actually asked people like Patrick Abood and Faustina Agoli, a whole range of people, to give us photos of them as children. So we had sometimes scrappy little scratchy photos of, you know, that, 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 that school photo from when you're in year two or year three or you had the Anton Enos gave us a gorgeous photo of him in South Africa as a coloured kid. And what we wanted to do is say, look at these photos. These are queer kids and these children were always there and children are there. They're sitting on... Uncom- Will Roche, who's a Nigerian, Jamaican, English guy, gave us a, a terrible, sad photo of him in primary school in London feeling totally out of place and his mum telling him, you're always going to have to work 10 times harder than the white kids. And what does that mean when you then come out as gay? I'd say, look at the pics. These are children. These are the children in our schools right now that we need to do this work and we need to look at the intersectionality of everything they're experiencing. And yeah, because safe schools right. is 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 more than just gender, isn't it? And often it's 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 stigmatised through a gender prism, uh, which is yeah. totally outrageous. But in actual fact, it's also about race and it's about safety. The name is safe schools for a very good reason. Absolutely, and James, and that's the thing. Like we, you know, we call them safe schools. We want to safe schools because we want to address the range of bullying and the range of issues that were happening. But at the same time, we need to name it. We can't just go, okay, bullying happens. But we need to name biphobia. We need to name transphobia. We need to give children and young people, you know, the the, the good meanings of words and how to use words appropriately and how to feel good about yourself. And and really, the way that um, the 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 reactionary, the reactions have been all about who should wear a dress or not a dress, and language. You know, Scott Morrison, gender whispers, that kind of stuff is real. And I love the way that children are coming forward, young people are coming forward and resisting this. Um, that kind of trivialisation and undermining by adults of children for whether it's about racism or religious bigotry or one's sexuality or one's gender, it's not on. It's really appalling. You mentioned Donald Trump before, and the book's media release also mentions the era of Donald Trump. How would you define the symbolism of the era of Trump and its impacts yeah. on the LGBTIQ community? Well, this kind of um, this, this fear and also the actions that have been covertly and overtly undertaken to try and undermine, undo a lot of good work, especially around transgender and gender diverse communities, but also the ongoing misogyny and the kind of almost, um, it's okay to to be a leader and to say those things. And I want to credit Paul Capsis, who did, does an, um, it was an amazing interview with Paul and is in this book. And he talks about coming to Melbourne to do cabaret. And he was reading the script of Cabaret as Trump was coming into power. And he rang his director and said, Gail, and said, this is the time to do this. We are in a time where if we don't resist, if we don't protest, if we don't keep doing all the good work we're doing, 
um, we, you know, we are going to lose a lot of this stuff. And he kind of, Paul saw the, the similarities between his upbringing, where he was right now doing cabaret, and that time before the Nazis came into Germany, the Weimar Republic. So the book is full of all these historical, um, and also where are we going from here? And, and also Aziel, I want to honour Aziel's work as a Mexican non-binary person who's now interning as a doctor in Melbourne, who talks about that Mexican-US border and living in Mexico and how that border symbolises the incredible borders that a lot of the people in this book are actually living between different communities and political places, sites. It sounds like the book is really questioning traditional power structures. Yes, it is. And you know what? It's not even, it's not this black and white thing too, because, you know, there is no one Muslim story. So there's about five or six diverse Muslim, um, bisexual, lesbian, gay, trans people in this book. What we wanted to do was actually, it had to be a place of dialogue and debate and discussion so that sometimes pieces contradict with each other and sometimes people as people do and it was also about our own multicultural communities this is not about just like okay you white people this is about the fact that many of us come from more established perhaps european communities where the racism towards emerging refugee communities is happening and then put on top of that diverse sexualities and genders and the other thing we did that was very very important and we want to honor annette giberis who's a wurundjeri elder in uh, Melbourne. Uh, most of the book was written and constructed on Wurundjeri land. Annette begins the book with a welcome to book and tells her story about being an Indigenous woman, an Indigenous lesbian with two children who has a Maltese father. And what happens when you're trying to navigate that Indigenous, multicultural, settler colonialism, you know, migrants coming in like my parents did who apparently were meant to build the nation. And then after her piece, we had a page which says multicultural queers say sorry. So the whole book is about, it's not about demonising one community. It's about we're all in Australia together and we have got lots of different directions where we're supporting each other but really causing problems for each other and we've got to come together. Of course, you're an academic at Deakin Uni. Your work in gender diversity has been described by many pundits as groundbreaking. We're living in an era of great change in relation to gender diversity. How do you think we'll look back on this era in 20 years' time? I think, and I'm right here at the Allied Conference, surrounded by amazing like university queer officers and the, the range of ways of doing your gender and doing your sexuality is really hopeful. And I want to thank Professor Baden-Offord and everyone here at Curtin Uni in Perth for putting this on. Um, I think we're going to look back at this time as um, a lot of people who are going to be left behind, really. Um, steps are being taken, this right-wing stuff, this this um, use of religion and, spirit and faith to actually um, create more and more problems for people. This, I've, I'm, I'm quite optimistic. I think this is going to go, and we're going to look back at this time as a bit of a turning point because I'm seeing younger generations, which I love now that I'm a lot older, I'm seeing a lot of younger generations who are actually questioning what the fuss is all about, where is the issue, and they're going to take this forward. You know, we've got amazing elders that unfortunately never had the opportunities in our multicultural queer spaces to say and do as we do. But we are, we're seeing a lot of emerging younger people who are coming forward and doing it their way. And I just hope they continue to honour where we've all come from and take it forward. But that those people that we dare to call leaders at the moment in these countries of ours, um, they're going to be left far behind. And I think history is not going to have nice things to say about them at all. 
Maria Palotto Chiarelli, thank you so much for joining us today on 3CR. Congratulations on your book, Living and Loving in Diversity. It's got 60 perspectives in it. Uh, It's a queer anthology with multicultural perspectives, and it's available from Wakefield Press, and people should go out to all good bookshops and get a copy. Thank you. Can I say one more thing? Absolutely. I was the chief. Oh, thank you. I can never be quiet. Days. I just want to think. I just want to say. Look, I did the book as a chief editor on behalf of the Australian LGBTIQ Multicultural Council (AGMC). The royalties will go to AGMC to continue the work with refugees and queer communities, and also everybody in the book. I really believe in, you know, shared work, collaborative work. Everyone in this book owns their own piece. It's their work, their lives, they go out and do it. I just had the gift as an ally to pulling it together and I just thank the various communities and people that gave me time. And we thank you, Maria. Love your work. Thank you so much, James, and you too. Cheers. Thank you. Bye. Bye. The wonderful Maria Palotto Chiarelli there from Deakin Uni talking about uh, the book that she's the chief editor of, but it has a huge cast of contributors. It's called Living and Loving in Diversity, and it's published by Wakefield Press. It's 4.32. You are on In Your Face on 3CR, and here's Sia. our Radical Radio t-shirts and so do we. They're a bargain at $20 for adults and $15 for kids and come in black, white, grey and a cool light blue. 
To nab one of these beauties, drop into the station at 21 Smith Street or order by phoning 94198377. Or you can visit us online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Come on, you know you want one. drinks and oh my god <laughs> Yeah. 
Gaga there. Sex dreams. It's 20 to 5 on In Your Face on 3CR with James. While Joel Murray is a policy officer for Positive Life and he attended the ASHAM conference, which is the Australasian Society for HIV, Viral Hepatitis and Sexual Medicine. Joel, welcome to 3CR. It's great to chat with you on the line. Yeah, thanks for having me on this afternoon. It's a great pleasure. So what was the key outcome, if you like, for people living with HIV at the conference? I think uh, certainly what we're seeing at the conference this year was we were focusing on populations living with HIV that weren't just about gay men. So um, we've, not, we've seen in the notification data that um, heterosexual populations, um, people from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds starting to come forward as the new diagnosis as decline among sort of gay white men, uh, HIV among gay white men kind of declines. And so I think it's really important that we start to think about how are we going to work with these communities that are, that are smaller than um, that low-hanging fruit, which is gay men. Um, I think another thing that the conference highlighted was that we're all starting to think about ageing. For the first time, we've got co- um, large cohorts of people living with HIV who are going to start ageing. They're going to start um, coming out of the workforce um, and they're going to think about what are their, what are their um, retirement needs or what are their aged care needs. And so we um, have as a sector, we need to focus on how aged care is going to be responsive to people living with HIV. But at the same time, we need to also be aware about the complexity of some people's health. So for people who've been living with HIV longer, they may have more um, complications as they get older. And so what we have to do is we need to be able to respond to those needs. And I imagine treatments is a pretty key response issue. What were some of the outcomes in relation to treatments that came up at the conference, particularly how you get the message about treatments out to those difficult-to-reach communities or or communities that may have language barriers or cultural barriers? Um, Well, I think, you know, um, treatments is um, really important because what we know is that the sooner someone is diagnosed and gets on treatment, the less complications there are going to be with their health in the long term. And that's because um, inflammation in the body caused by HIV can can lead to complications. And so the HIV medicine these days is very, very good and it reduces that inflammation. Um, one of the interesting things that's coming out in the treatment space is the concept of um, a, two treat, a two-drug regime. So um, most of us living with HIV usually take um, three or four drugs to control HIV. And there's some studies that have come out that have shown that maybe for, for some people, two drugs might be um, suitable. And so the, the reason behind that is that we think maybe if we're taking drugs long term, the effects of the drug, two drugs is less than, say, three or four in the long term. To what extent did the conference address issues around stigma uh, and its mental health impacts, particularly in relation to depression and anxiety? I read your um, forward in the HIV Futures report uh, and and you said that basically stigma has huge mental health impacts, particularly in relation to depression and anxiety. Yeah, um, so I think stigma is starting to really come to the fore. Uh, we have, in, well, particularly where you're from in Victoria, the Victorian HIV strategy specifically um, has some goals around uh, HIV stigma and discrimination. Um, and what we also know is that um, people who um, are living in more um, marginalised or intersecting communities, um, so where there might be HIV as one feature, but there might also be 
say, the stigma of mental health or the stigma of sex work or the stigma of, of using drugs. And so where we have different intersections where it means that the stigma can be quite great for a person. Um, interestingly, how we one way we can address stigma is to build resilience in people living with HIV. And so that means uh, educating people living with HIV to make informed choices about their health, but then supporting that choice, whichever it is that they make. To what extent did the ASHAM conference uh, really spell out the importance of peer education for the HIV-positive community, and were there any new or innovative approaches to peer support that stood out? I'm really glad you mentioned um, Power of Peers, and there was an entire session uh, that I was speaking um, at, and there was probably another six speakers, all talking about different approaches um, to uh, peer work. Um, One interesting thing that's happening in Queensland uh, they they were the first um, state to run what's known as this peer navigation program. And uh, subsequently, there's programs um, running in Victoria and there's one about to start in New South Wales. And so what that does is it places a person living with HIV with um, a client of um, a particular clinic. And maybe that um, person living with HIV is able to um, assist that per- or support that person in a way that the clinician isn't able to. And it's not saying we're replacing the clinicians because the clinicians will still do their job, but maybe there's some stuff around peer support that we can do which helps that person feel more confident in navigating the healthcare system. To what extent did the ASHAM conference explore the decriminalisation of sex work and any links between that and increased prevention of HIV and other STIs? Um, That's also a really good point. Um, Sex work was mentioned quite a lot um, this year and there was also quite a good presence um, from sex worker organisations from Queensland, um, from the National um, Skull Alliance and also from SWAT New South Wales. Um, And one of the the plenaries, um, we had a look at the um, prevalence of HIV among sex workers in Australia. And um, we were told that um, Australia, compared to the global epidemic, um, in Australia, sex workers have 15,000 times less HIV in that population. So what that means is that um, early on in the HIV epidemic, um, activists and people who worked with sex workers and sex workers themselves knew that condoms were an effective way to prevent HIV. And there's been consistent condom use and um, uh, and voluntary STI screening among sex workers um, for the last few decades. And so that's proven to be a really effective strategy at um, keeping HIV very, very low in uh, among sex workers. Australia, of course, has a reputation for being at the forefront of HIV prevention. Are you finding that still the case? Did you get a sense of that at the ASHAM conference, that Australia is still kind of leading the world, or have we slipped behind? Um, interestingly, uh, I went to a session from the British HIV Association, and uh, London, like Melbourne, is what's known as a UN fast-track city. And uh, what a fast-track city uh, does is they try to reach 95, 95, 95. And that means 95% of people uh, who are living with HIV have been diagnosed. 95% of those are, are on treatment and 95% of those have a sustained viral load. And so London has already met, um, as a fast track city, they've already met those goals. 
Um, whereas Melbourne, for example, we're very close to meeting those goals. So we're certainly among the leaders in the world, but we're not the leader. And that's really good for us um, to know because we can now look at London and because that last 5% is going to be really difficult to get to. And it means that we might, might need to pour more resources into um, getting that 5%. And if we can look to London as an example, maybe we, there's some things that we can learn um, from, from their lead. What did the Asham Conference hear about the use of crystal meth among the gay community, particularly in relation to people living with HIV? So there were um, quite a number of studies that were presented on this topic. Uh, one was the ongoing flux study, which the Kirby Institute um, has been running for a number of years now. That's a cross-cohort longitudinal study. Um, one of the results from that found that um, there was no um, statistical, like people who used crystal methamphetamine were not, uh, it was not a predictor for anxiety and depression. Um, which is a, is a really interesting result. Uh, a further analysis in another presentation um, uh, uh, on future eight data um, also looked at kind of emotional well-being and social connectivity in relation to crystal methamphetamine use, and also found that um, people who you, um, people living with HIV, gay and bisexual men who use crystal meth, were more likely to have a higher level of resilience, and that's most likely due to the connected nature of um, sexualized drug network. Mm-hmm. It's fascinating. To what extent were issues for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people living with HIV explored at this week's Asham conference in Sydney? I think um, we really need to be alarmed at the rise in HIV among Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Um, it's a population um, that we don't want to leave behind. And there was there was quite a lot. Um, there was a few presentations on that, of course, um, from James Ward. Um, he's from Queensland. He's kind of he's like you know the it guy when it comes to HIV and, and Torres Strait Islander, uh, sorry, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Um, it's it's challenging because um, we don't want to be white people coming in and and telling. Um, Aboriginal communities what they um, want to do, but what we do need to do is support them to self-determine. Um, uh, yeah, so I mean there are some lots of challenges ahead, particularly um, working with um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. But we we need to um, ensure that um, effort is being made to address to address this problem. It sounds like it's a pretty wide gap to close. It's a very, it's a very wide gap to close. <laughs> To what extent did the conference explore HIV treatment issues for women uh, and what were the key messages? I know treatments, for example, can impact differently on women. Yeah, um, so there was... Interesting, there was a launch um, of a new resource and it was sort of a bit of a discussion about how um, the U equals U message, which is undetectable equals untransmittable, how that might work or not work for women. Uh, In particular, um, there we still don't really have a lot of science around um, um, breastfeeding. And for women who um, want to have children, we, you know, you can conceive naturally as a, as a woman living with HIV and there are um, steps we, that, you, that we can take to reduce that, uh, the baby's risk of um, HIV transmission, uh, but we still don't really know the, what the science is around um, breastfeeding. So we don't know if we don't know if breastfeeding can um, 
result in perinatal transmission between mother and child? There's still a grey area there, is there? Well, what we're observing is um, that that's not the case. Right. We just don't have the clinical evidence to say this this thing we know for sure. And mm. so, while that while there's still while there's still a conflict between what we're observing and what is clinically available, um, it can create great confusion um, for, for women. And so um, what we need to do is um, to support women and the choices that they want to make around breastfeeding. It sounds like there's a shortfall of funding in relation to research for that particular area in relation to breastfeeding and women with HIV. Look, I think women um, overall uh, in research are underrepresented. Um, part of it comes from uh, the problem with some of the trial models we use, such as like using rodents. Um, female rodents have a very, very quick gestation period, and so it's hard to determine whether that's a, that's, that's a physiological effect from the drug or that's a physiological um, effect from um, from gestation. So um, we need to rethink of how we do um, trials for medicine and uh, and we all, but, but what we also need to do is specifically include more more um, research around women living with HIV. What sense of change did you get at the conference? Was there a sense that over the last year or two there's been enormous change in a particular area in relation to HIV or sexual health or viral hepatitis which the conference focused on? I think certainly, uh, you know, we're seeing we're starting to see drops in HIV notifications around um, some gay men. I think um, people, well, you know, there's, but what it highlights is that there are there are other people who who aren't getting the message of um, that maybe they're not getting tested, maybe they don't have sexual health literacy um, because they're home home country, for example, doesn't have that culture or a language even around that. Um, we, yeah, there's a whole, it's, I mean, it's so complex because we're starting to get into really intersectional issues such as um, racism and um, uh, the social determinants of health like poverty and schooling and English language. So, yeah, we're starting to get into the pointy end of the epidemic, which means that we really do need to be working with the communities rather than telling the communities what they need. We need to be working with them to find out on what's going to work for them. Were there any issues that came up around access to PrEP and perhaps any groups um, missing out on that? I know there's been reports of the gender-diverse community often not being prescribed PrEP when perhaps they should have been. Yeah, um, um, I'm not too across um, the full kind of story for trans and gender diverse people and PrEP, but I do know that there has been, um, it's taken a while for the PrEP guidelines to reflect, for example, um, the risk for um, trans men who are having sex with gay men, uh, cisgendered men. So, um, yeah, look, I think there's work going on in the background about progressing those issues and to ensuring that um, both um, trans women and trans men are getting counted properly in data. I think uh, around access to PrEP, the other group that I have to acknowledge are people who aren't eligible for Medicare. So that's anyone who might be over here on some sort of temporary visa arrangement, whether that be a student or a, um, a working visa. Or a refugee. Um, anyone who, 
Yeah, or a refugee asylum seekers, yeah. I mean, people like that don't have access to Medicare. And and what that might mean is that um, there there could be access to PrEP, which could, you know, if they're at risk of HIV, then access to PrEP could prevent HIV. But um, I I guess this is where community groups like PrEP Access Now are really important in um, helping to facilitate um, people getting access to PrEP irrespective of their Medicare status. Joel, you've been a wealth of information. Thank you for reporting back to us about the ASHAM conference in Sydney this week. Of course, it focused on HIV, viral hepatitis and sexual health. And we'll have to get you back. Uh, It's been really informative talking to you. Thank you. My pleasure. Joel Murray there, he is a policy officer with our Positive Life New South Wales. It is the peak advocacy organisation in New South Wales for people living with HIV. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.